0: Okay, guys, I'm, I'm putting this on YouTube. So those of you who are not in my class, this is kind of a crash course in, in the entire book of Genesis. I've labeled this the entire book of Genesis in one hour. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll take an hour, it might take a little more than an hour, it might take 50 minutes, I don't know, but we'll, we'll see if it ends up being an hour. So, okay, so that's for those who are watching this on a YouTube channel. For my students uh, currently taking this class, the first day of class, we, we, after we introduced the class and we went over the syllabus, we launched into this, some of this material. We were going fast and it's not really the style that I will have the rest of the semester. Usually I wanna slow down, I wanna talk about it, but this first class was a little bit different because we didn't have any readings to prepare you before class or any videos or anything. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna record, like right here, I'm gonna re-record that whole lecture so for my students watch this again you're going to have a quiz on this material and then after this is just sort of a crash course you know in the literary structure the academics uh the academic issues about the book of genesis and then we will meet and in class next time and we'll talk about some of this and we'll bring in some of our perspective of our faith community and and try to wrestle with some of this stuff and talk about the implications okay so Let's jump in and we'll see how long. Let me just time myself. So, the entire book of Genesis in one hour. Purpose of Genesis is to explain, not historically, is to explain theologically how the world was created, how humankind became cursed. Um, It's to explain God's plan in rescuing humanity and explain the founding of the Israelite nation. So there's a lot of these major issues in the book of Genesis. In the first part of the book of Genesis, What we learn in the first part, especially in Genesis 12 and 15, runs through the rest of the book of Genesis, but also the rest of the Hebrew Bible. So the reason why in the semester I'm dealing with Genesis like this in a whole lecture is because the book of Genesis is the foundation for the rest of the Hebrew Bible and clear into the New Testament. Like everything goes back to The Abrahamic covenant back to the founders, back to the creation. I mean, it's constantly referring back to these individuals and those stories. Okay, so that's what the major purpose is. There are four main sections there's their primeval history, the first 11 chapters, and then we have Abraham. Abraham, Isaac is with Abraham, Abraham, and then you have Jacob, and then you have Joseph. Okay, so in class, I showed this screen. I'm not going to click on these YouTube videos, but you can pause the screen. You can even search on youtube some of this when ken ham debated bill nye about the creation ken ham is the one who started the museum the kentucky bible museum it's like a what is it the ark it's this big ark and it's a creation museum and ken ham and bill nye what we know is the science guy debate about evolution and about the history of the earth you also have the flat earth convention we talked about some of that in class uh there's people who have homeschool curric- uh, curricula, various curricula, and they use the Bible and Genesis for their science sections. There's another link here on the Galilee man. I did not show this in class last time, but this is when you go to Israel if you go to when you go to the Israel Museum, I, I take people there on occasion and we go see the, the skull of the Galilee man. It's like half the skull. This is dated to a couple hundred thousand years back from now like Two hundred thousand to four hundred thousand years old. It's a very, very old um, skeleton. Okay. The reason why I showed a lot of this in class, a lot of these uh, videos on YouTube, is to show just how much right, like right now in the, in the twenty first century, in the year twenty twenty three, just how many people are watching these videos. There's hundreds of thousands of people that click on some of these videos and watch them about the Earth being flat or being like a dome shape. And why the Flat Earth people seem to have a resurgence. Uh, you have, you know a lot of these debates today about the age of the Earth, um how long people have been on the Earth. Some of these videos have arguments that dinosaurs were on the ark. It's not all Christians, it's some Christians, but I wanted class to know what's circulating around. So anyway, you can pause this video if you want, and then you know even jot down some of these YouTube links or just go search and watch what's happening. Currently, where people are looking using the book of Genesis to talk science, and there's debates and there's arguments about this. Okay. So, generally, the, the general view, not just in Genesis, but if you take a few passages in Psalms and a few passages throughout the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah, you get, and also other ancient Near Eastern texts, you get this idea that the globe, as you can see here, that the, the world, the world is like a snow globe, it's a flat bottom flat surface earth with the dome shaped over it and the hebrew word for firmament this is a firmament the hebrew word for that i think is rakia i remember rakia is a cognate to another ancient near eastern language i think syrian which means something like a golden dome golden dome that's what they see they see a dome in the skies so all these stars golden dome and you have the waters above, and you have the waters beneath, and you have pillars that are holding up the earth. So you got the snow globe with pillars. You have the underworld underneath, and you know this is where the sea monsters and other things like under the ocean. And then even below that is, is Sheol or uh, it's below the earth. And then you've got this. Uh, so it's this other picture where you can see on the on, I think it's for me, it's on the right. I don't know if it's flipping it for the video. But the picture the drawn picture of with no colors on it you have number four uh the designation number four where well, those are windows the windows of heaven and in, in malachi we learn or we read about you know if you pay to this to the to the temple the storehouse uh tithes and offerings to the temple priests to the temple establishment to keep the priests uh functioning and working if you give your tithes god will open up the windows of heaven and Pour out blessings upon you. Okay, those blessings are crops. The God of the, the gods of the ancient world help your crops to grow. They can bring rain, or they can stop up the heavens and prevent rain from coming. And so that's when Malachi is talking about opening the windows and pouring out blessings from heaven. That's rain. Okay? That's the substance, growth, and life. Water. Okay, so that's what that's about. That that's the imagery that they have. Okay. So that's in a nutshell, the cosmos in the Iron Age and even before the Bronze Age and in the Iron Age. OK, so that gives you an idea of why people are drawing images and why the flat Earth community is using this model. OK, so now we shift a little bit. Again, this is just a crash course. We shift to the historical context of the book of Genesis. Now, here is. Gary Rendsburg, he's a conservative biblical scholar, um, observant Jew, he's visited this campus, my campus several times, and I've, I've authored, uh, worked with him, published with him in, in a book that I did a few years ago. But here, I, I always like to share this quote because here's what he says, here's the context in which he puts the book of Genesis, and I'll just read his words. The lecture back in 2004, Gary says that scribes wrote, Those who did the book of Genesis down, they wrote a national epic incorporating all of the earlier traditions back to Abraham and embedded it into that narrative, anticipations of the present. Okay, so they're writing about the past, their, their, their traditions, their oral traditions. But when they write it about Abraham, about Isaac, about Jacob, they are anticipating or talking about what's happening to them in the present. Okay, so then he continues on the third line here. He says, that is to say, there there is a social, religious, and indeed political message in the book of Genesis. And he says, less so in the other four books of the Torah, even though their occasional points shine through. Okay. Then he says, in other words, these scribes tell the story about their past, but they reflect on the present. This was a major accomplishment of the anonymous authors in Jerusalem who created the book of Genesis. Uh, I wouldn't say they created it. I would probably say they redacted it. There's, you know, and he probably means the same thing. They created it in its final form. The form that we have in, uh, that's known to later authors, like the people who wrote Chronicles or Josephus in the first century, who retells the story. Those later authors who know what the book of Genesis, how it came to us today. Um, That's how they created it. Okay. This was a major accomplishment, according to uh, Gary Rensburg. This technique, he continues, this technique is well known in world literature. Take an example from film, the movie M.A.S.H., written in 1969. Tells the story of American troops during the Korean War, but as all who see that film know, in in essence, it is about another land war in Asia. The one still raging in 1969, the one in Vietnam. The anti-war, pro-peace stance of the lead character, Benjamin Franklin Hawkeye Pierce, reflects the present which is the late 1960s, but is anachronistic for the early 1950s. Okay, so in a nutshell, the authors of Genesis, just like the people who wrote the movie MASH in the 60s, the setting of that movie was in the 50s in the Korean War. But really, if you, if you know what's happening in your own day in the Vietnam War, you know that the movie is really talking about issues relevant to the Vietnam War, even though the story is set in an earlier era, with the Korean War, Same thing with Genesis. this story this this book is written at a later time, perhaps in the seven seven hundreds, six hundreds, five hundreds. there's some debate about when it's written, but they're writing about their present circumstances, even though they're writing back about they're telling their traditions about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and creation okay perfect perfect quote for people to 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 uh, understand what's happening, okay. So then um, this is also taken from the work of Gary Rensberg and others. And this is seeing the period of the monarchy in Genesis, even though Genesis purports to be, or is about the events clear back in like, uh, all the way back to the beginning of the world, all the way up to around 2000 or BC, or like even 1600 BCE, okay? But the argument is that maybe Genesis was written After King David, after King David, after even Solomon, during the days when there was a king in Jerusalem. And here's some of the evidence. So, as you can see on the screen, God promised Abraham and Sarah that kings will stem from them, will come from them. So, the the authors are already focused on kings. This is not strong evidence by itself, but this is one little piece that we'll add to. Okay. The boundaries of the land of Canaan promised to Abraham in uh, Genesis 15, 18. So those boundaries are the same boundaries that are in the heyday of the Davidic-Solomonic monarchy. Same one. The mentioned boundaries at the time of Abraham. Happens to fit the boundaries at the time of David and Solomon. Genesis emphasizes Judah a great deal. Judah is, is a prominent figure in the book. And Judah receives a blessing from his father that through him, his, his lineage will produce kings. So the tribe of Judah later was the dominant tribe in the southern kingdom. The king was from, David was from the tribe of Judah. Okay, next. David ruled over at least three small kingdoms. It was Ammon, Moab, and Edom. They were all rivals, rival small rival kingdoms in the land of Canaan and in the Transjordan on the other side of the Jordan River. And... When we, when we read Genesis, we can see Genesis explains the origins of all these kingdoms. If you remember, Ammon and Moab were born from incest to Abraham's nephew Lot, right? And Lot escapes Sodom and Gomorrah. He and his daughters thought that the whole world was, there was nobody else on the world, on the earth. And so his daughters got him drunk and procreated with him. And the sons that came from those daughters were Ammon and Moab that's the claim of the israelites writing later during the time when they are uh, they're rivaling uh, their rival nations with Ammon and moab they write to uh to criticize to slam um these neighboring nations they're saying okay we're better than you we're our god is stronger than you and after all you guys were products your your progenitor the founder of your like nation the father of your nation was a result of incest, okay? This is all throughout the ancient Near East, this polemic against other people. Um, You're trying to paint them in the worst light possible. Also, the father of the Edomites was Esau, Abraham's grandson, Esau. This is a twin relationship. Jacob and Esau were brothers. Esau's the older brother. And and then if you remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so you have the, the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom they were rival nations. In fact, if you remember from the book of Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah laments that the Edomites during the Babylonian siege, when the Babylonians came in and they were um, destroying some of these cities and they were wreaking havoc in the land, the Edomites were using that as an opportunity to go pillage some of the cities and even kill some Israelites. And so Obadiah is writing in there that some that he's he's criticizing Edom. And he says, eventually, these two kingdoms, these brother nations, supposedly from twins, Jacob and Esau, will come together, be restored, uh, restored together and once again become brotherly nations. Okay, those are that's the origins in Genesis. But you can see how it's written at a time when there's a lot of animosity between the two nations. Okay, also, Isaac blesses Jacob that his nation will be lord over he says, "You you and your nation will be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you." Now this is interesting because it's very it's a political language. It's political language because only there's only one other son. There's Jacob, and then there's only one other son from Rebekah. So when Jacob receives a blessing that you're going to subjugate them, that's only really talking about the Edomites, okay? This is political language at a later time when these nations were warring. Okay, does that make sense? If it doesn't, bring your questions to class. And uh, those of you who are not in my class, watching this on YouTube, you can ask questions in the comments section. Okay, also you have Genesis places emphasis on Jerusalem. Remember Jerusalem is not a city at the time of Genesis, like at the time of Abraham. Like it's, it's, it's different, um, the, the Jerusalem, the capital of Jerusalem that the Israelites know that David conquers, that David's the one that conquered this in around a 1000 or so BC. But in Genesis, you can start to see crumbs that were dropped in the text that show that their current emphasis is on Jerusalem. So let me show you what this is all about. So in Genesis chapter two, verses 13, it, it mentions in passing the Gihon River that flows in Eden, flows in the Garden of Eden. But if you remember. The Gihon Spring, same name, Gihon Spring, was Jerusalem's water source after David conquered the city. All the way through, even in, um, into the New Testament time period, that was there. there was one spring right there at the base of the city of David, right in Kidron Valley, the Gihon Spring. This is important because there are prophecies in later books. You have Ezekiel, you have Zechariah, you have Joel, as you can see up on the screen. The prophecies that water will flow... From out from, it says out from under the temple and flow down the Kidron Valley and heal the Dead Sea. Okay, well, that's the Gihon Spring. What it's saying is that in that time, in a messianic age or some future, like, end of world age, eventually Jerusalem is going to be turned back into, converted back into its Edenic paradise, paradise of Eden. And that river will flow once again. Gihon, Gihon Spring, Gihon River will flow and it will heal the Dead Sea. Okay, so you can see how this is working. Also, you have Abraham travels to Jerusalem, to Salem. It's called Salem. And when he's there, he paid tithes to Melchizedek and in, in Genesis 14. And he sacrifices a ram on Mount Moriah, or the Mount of Yahweh, in Genesis 22, where the temple would later sit. So, boil this down. You've got three elements in Genesis that relate to what would later become Jerusalem's source of uh, political and religious power? Priesthood, represented in Melchizedek. You have the sacrifice to Yahweh. I mean, sacrifice, the temple would be, later be there, and you have the Gihon Spring. All of these elements legitimize Jerusalem as the current administrative and sacrificial capital. Now, um, and this is during the time of David, David and Solomon, it became the capital. So it. I wonder, depending on when the scribes finished the book of genesis they were probably trying to make an argument that the 10 tribes the the tribes that were um split off from solomon and moved they built their own temples and their own sanctuaries north up in up in dan bethel and other places that they are the argument is that they are illegitimate it's always been jerusalem jerusalem is where the priesthood should be jerusalem is is the the mount of yahweh it's not up north You guys are had broken away, you're illegitimate in your worship. You see how, even in the book of Genesis, the crumbs that are dropped in there are trying to whisper, they're trying to whisper to the reader that it's Jerusalem and it's the southern kingdom of Judah, is where the central authority should be placed. This is the time of Josiah, where Josiah in you know the seventh, late seventh century is trying to reform the entire land, entire area, and bring and centralize worship to, into Jerusalem. That brings worship, it also brings money, brings everything, centralizes it. That's what all this is about. Also, Genesis contains brother issues. There's younger brothers that are always favored. So here's this list, remember, Abel over Cain, Isaac is over Ishmael, Jacob is over Esau, Judah over his older brothers born from Leah, and Joseph over his 10 brothers who sold him. Okay, and then Joseph's son, Ephraim is over Manasseh, And then even after you leave Genesis, you get into the first part of Exodus. It's Moses who is favored over Aaron. Why does this matter? And how how, how does this speak to later David and Solomon? Well, this would provide the legitimacy, the argument. The reason why these stories are being told in a certain way is to provide legitimacy to David and Solomon as kings because both of them are not firstborn sons, yet they became king. So David was the youngest son of Jesse. He becomes king. And then Adonijah is David's oldest remaining son, but it was not Adonijah who became king. It was his younger brother, Solomon. Okay? So, again, these authors are writing about the prior time during Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all that, Cain and Abel, all of that. They're writing it, but they're thinking about how we can uh, be an apologist, apologist meaning to defend the Davidic monarchy and the fact that they are legitimate kings because it's perhaps... The case that some people in the north or some other people challenged the view that Solomon and David should have been king or challenged that line, you know, that line. And so the writers are saying, no, Jerusalem is supposed to Jerusalem is where it's at. Judah is the home of the king. And David and Solomon are legitimate kings. So that's what that's about. Also, you have multiple stories of fraternal strife. It's the same thing. So not only are younger brothers over older brothers, but there's some brothers trying to kill their, their brothers. So you have Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, all those there's attempts to, to harm or kill their brother. You also have Cain and Abel. Um, if the book of Genesis was written within this backdrop of the monarchy, then the stories make sense because you have this time, you have David's son, son Absalom kills his brother Amnon for raping Tamar, remember that, and then you have Solomon killed his brother Adonijah. And you can go look at those references. Also note that Cain killed Abel in the field, quote, in the field in Genesis 4. Absalom killed Amnon in the field in 2 Samuel 14. I don't think this is a coincidence. I think the authors know what they're writing, and they're, they're trying to make a point. Again, leaving crumbs to make a political point in, in the book. This is also important because what, you, what we also see is that King David is patterned after Judah. These people are parallel. Judah and David are both shepherds who separate from their brothers and move to a place called Adullam. Adullam is uh, in Genesis 38 and 1 Samuel 22. Both, this is both happened to Judah and David. Judah's wife is described called Bathsheba, the daughter of Shua. David's wife is called Bathsheba. People in English they say Bathsheba, but it's Bathsheba, the daughter of Sheba. It's the chronicler who later wrote Chronicles changes this and says that both wives were named Bathsheba. So you can see this is the ancient authors, ancient people dealing with this text. Even the chronicler knows that David and Judah are doubling. And so they the names have to be, the, the wives' names have to be the same. Both of these men, Judah and David, have daughters named Tamar. And Judah, Judah is her, his daughter-in-law. David is his daughter. And both of those women are at the center of sexual scandal you read about that in genesis 38 and 2nd samuel 12. david is the Judahite king and this story in genesis 38 might have been constructed with david in mind so now we move to when was genesis and the torah written okay we've already started that with perhaps it was written during the monarchy um, but this is a continuation with different with different data points. It says that, and this is a typical case that a lot of people, you know, in undergrad classes use to start the discussion. And that is Moses says that Moses wrote of his own death in Deuteronomy 34. Moses supposedly writes, if indeed Moses is writing the text, and there arose not a prophet since Israel like unto Moses. So scholars started to think about: is that really Moses writing about his own death, or is there someone else writing this? You also have this phrase in Genesis 14:14. 14, 14, as far as Dan. okay, why, why is that a problem? Well, supposedly this is written about Abraham at the time of Abraham. there's no such thing as a territory of Dan. okay that Dan was one of the 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob and they when they came into the land of Israel, they partitioned the land off into tribal territories and Dan eventually ended up in the far north. And so it says that Abraham, like in Genesis 14, Abraham traveled as far as Dan. That doesn't fit for the tribe. You know, clearly, this text is being written right. after they enter the land of Canaan, long after the judges, when all these lands were set up in, in, in territories. Okay? You also have this phrase in Deuteronomy, to this day. You'll know, say it says something like, you know, this place was called Bethel, and it's called that to this day. This phrase implies that a significant time has passed. When you say to this day, you're referring to at least a generation, maybe more time has passed. Significant amount of time. You also have in Deuteronomy 1.1, it says, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan. Again, we have an author who's writing in the land of Canaan, remembering the time when they were across on the other side of Jordan before they came into the land of Canaan. And he's writing, these are the words that Moses spoke to uh, the people of Israel. Okay, now before we get to that, okay, so that's kind of wraps up the little the points, the data points that help us start to think about when these texts are written. And the reason why, and we'll talk in class later about why this is important to keep this in mind, instead of just assuming that somebody somewhere wrote these texts and it's absolutely perfectly historical and it's just as good as video or audio evidence that Abraham did this or Isaac did that. We have to keep in mind that these are oral traditions that were set down in a certain time and place, and these are political texts. Okay. They are national histories, but they're very political. Oftentimes writing to defend their own positions in relation to the, what other people are saying about them and to polemicize or criticize other nations, right? That, that's, that's all throughout the engineers. Okay, we funnel into Genesis one one, Genesis sorry Genesis one through eleven. This is the primeval history. The purpose of this part of the of the book is to tell about the two time downward spiral of humanity. What do we mean? Okay, so here's the first five chapters, and here are the next five chapters. So the first eleven chapters you can see parallel. Okay, first you have creation, and then in Genesis two you have a second creation at the Garden of Eden. Cain and Abel, like, so you have creation, Garden of Eden, Adam's posterity, okay? Then you have the flood, which is a second creation, and then Noah's posterity. This is how this is broken down. But let me show you, if we put it into a uh, sort of a literary structure with highlighted in different colors, you can see what's going on here. The parts of this primeval history, it's structured to match, to parallel, to, to repeat itself, okay? So these color codes are sections that that when the scribes wrote these texts down, they meant for for the red sections, the A sections, to parallel each other, for the B sections to parallel each other, the C, D, and E. Okay, so here is, let me just show you an example. I won't do all of these, but I'll show you an example. If we take those A sections in this screen here and pair them up, what you would see, and this is again from the research of uh, Gary Rensberg and others who study the study the texts, you will see that in both sections, there's some repetitions, there's some words and phrases that are repeated. Wind, ruach, shows up in both, to home, which is a word that means abyss or the great deep, shows up in both. The land becomes visible in both units. Animals and humans are to be fruitful and multiply. That shows up in both units. Humans are given mastery over the animals in both of those units. It says that every living creeper, fowl, beast, cattle, according to its kind, it says those very words in both units. Um, Near the end of creation and the flood, it contains in the image of God, he created humankind. Okay, that's in both units. Also, God, quote, had not brought rain upon the earth in the first unit, and then God will send rain upon the earth in the second unit. Actually, I do have one more. Let me show you this one. So here's another example. You take the B sections, Adam's sons, Noah's son. Again, you have both of these units contain discord between brothers, ending in fratricide or enslavement for one of the brothers. The sons of Adam and Noah are named at the beginning of each unit. There's both tilling of the soil stories in these units. Sons are cursed in both of these units. Um, In the first unit, in Adam's In in the first B unit, uh, it says, Cain said to his brother Abel. And what's interesting is then you read on, and there's no words that follow. It's kind of a weird text where it says, Cain said to his brother Abel, and then there's nothing. It's interesting that in the second unit, you have Ham. This is in the Septuagint, by the way, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Ham, Noah's son Ham, said it says, he said to his brothers, and then there's no words that follow. The author does not want us to know what was said. And so those missing words seem to be deliberate in order to have these two sections parallel themselves, okay? So I'm not gonna do all the other sections, C, D, E, but you can see this is not just a coincidence. So when I go back here to show you this, it's not just a coincidence. It's not that I'm just making it up or or someone reading into it that these are parallel. Like the ancient scribes, the writers, absolutely wrote these sections so that they would parallel each other. The evidence of that is both in this structure shown here and then in a lot of this information, where you see um, a lot of similarities showing up in each unit in relation to each other. Okay. So we move the discussion forward. Just within the last couple centuries, scholars who study the text started to notice some interesting things of the text they didn't notice before. Some people probably noticed them, but it's really uh, when this started where. Two accounts of creation, people notice that. There were, you know, in Genesis 1, and then it repeats in Genesis 2. You read and you finish this creation account, and then it starts again. And you're like, wait a minute. God's creating all this again? There's two creation accounts. There's two accounts f- of the flood. There's multi- multiple accounts of the Mosaic laws, and they don't always match up. And then there's two accounts of God revealing his name to Moses. And there's other examples, but these are the main things that people noticed. Uh, and Julius Wellhausen is one of those very famous scholar, founder of what we call the Documentary Hypothesis. You can see the date of when he died 1918. So we're talking about a long time ago where people like Julius Valhausen noticed the different authors. And he started to say, he started to try to pull these texts out and say, okay, you have Genesis 1 that tells a creation, Genesis 2 tells a creation, and then it moves on and the language changes back. And so he would take Genesis 1 and maybe parts of Genesis 3 or whatever, and he would move them together, and they, you know, he was, tr- he was trying to tease out the different possible uh, texts that were then put together. And um, an analogy would be, had someone taken Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, let's say those four texts, and harmonized them. They, they turned into one account, and then let's say that all of the Gospels that we have, the indep- the independent Gospels, those manuscripts were lost not preserved. And the only thing we had was those stories that were all put together, one long account. That's basically what we have. So we've got a document called the J document, the E document, P document, and the D document. And this is very basic stuff for people who study the Bible. Um, but for most undergrads, even people who have been Christian or Jewish their whole lives, they, they might not know this. Anybody listening who has even stepped one, stepped one foot into a graduate An introductory graduate class on the Bible would know this stuff. This is not, this is very mainstream. I'm just telling you this so my students kind of know this isn't just some crazy, like esoteric thing that I'm fixating on. This is a major aspect of of biblical studies. Okay, so the J source, people like Bellhausen said, noticed that what he thought was one document that you could pull out of the text. There's the use of the name Yahweh or Jehovah where we get Jehovah. Um, Yahweh, in this text, is very anthropomorphic, meaning he's very human-like, he's a human-like deity. He walks through the garden in the breeze, the cool breeze, feels the cool breeze of the day, this sort of thing. In the J source, um, you see a loyalty to the southern kingdom of Judah. Scholars, some of them have argued for a 10th century date, so the 900s, because the boundaries of the promised land in Genesis 15 are the same boundaries controlled by King David and Solomon. We mentioned that a little bit before, but this is uh, another reason for that. Okay. You have the e-source, it's cons- uh, this consistent use. They don't use, the authors don't use Yahweh, they use Elohim. In, this, in these sections, deity is more indirect. God reveals himself in, like he's more majestic. He reveals himself in dreams or through prophets. Um, also the word prophet is characteristic of the e source only in the e source abraham and miriam are called prophet navi um moses's mountain experience was at Horeb, where in the j document it's at sinai so those are two different you know two different places Moses' father in law is jethro in the e document whereas in the j source it's ruel the geography of the e document is often with the northern it's placed in the northern kingdom of israel so it potentially preserves those issues that they, that they cared about. And then the emphasis on E on prophecy in E might suggest that this is the in the 8th century where you get the rise of the Israelite uh, prophet class and prophecy, okay? So this is like Elisha uh, and Elijah you know, in the 8th century. You have the P source, it's an emphasis called P, because it's emphasis on the priestly priestly ritual matters in, you know, in the creation account, God rested on the Sabbath. Um, like, in the e, like in the E document, P is also uh, P also used Elohim. Like in the E document, P uh, the deity is remote and doesn't interact much with humans directly. It Doesn't even interact with humans through dreams. It only manifests himself in the, the glory or the called the, the cloud, the Shekinah. All of the boring sections, a lot of those boring sections where there's talking in, in nuanced detail about the priestly vestments and the tabernacle and stuff, that's that's the authors of P, preserving that. And it's often dated to the 6th century. So we're talking about the 500s, very, very late date, where the priestly, this priestly scribal group took the traditions and wanted to put their own emphasis, put their fingerprints on The text, these four documents are found throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So right here, the actual, the D source is is entirely the book of Deuteronomy found in the days of Jeremiah or Josiah. So that's where the D comes from. Okay, So here's a picture that kind of shows, this is from a textbook, Michael Coogan, I think, in his textbook on the Old Testament, where he kind of breaks it down and gives you this visual of when G, or sorry, when J or E uh, or D was combined and at the different time periods. And then finally in the 500s, at some point, they were all brought together to create the final book of Genesis as we, pretty much as we know it today, for the most part. And then you'd be looking on this other side, the other side of the screen you have, if you were to separate all these texts out and you have the J text, the J document and the P document, you can snip them out of, you know, put them back in their original, return them to their original, status uh, from what we can tell, and then you can read it all straight through and it makes sense. Okay, so that, that's the argument, that's the idea that people like Julius Wellhausen noticed, and then scholars have been debating this and talking about this and teaching on this for 200 years. It's still a source of debate. People still debate nuances and they wonder about dating or about texts. Um, so it's been fun to learn about and watch this debate happen. Okay, so now we let's get into the creation accounts and see how this works. You've got the P document, you have the first creation in Genesis 1, and then you have the second creation, the J document. So notice up here on the screen that the differences. So, DD is called Elohim. We're here on the J document, DD is called Yahweh. Um, and it just kind of goes through, just like we talked about, God is more distant, He's more distant from humanity and more majestic in the first creation. You notice when you get to Genesis 2 and you're rereading the creation. From the J perspective, the Yahwist's perspective, God is human-like. Like I said before, he walks in the garden pool of the day. It's also interesting that you have the Hebrew word bara in the first creation, where that's the verb to create, God created. It's only a divine term used for, for the gods, use this as a creation. It's only connected to divinity. In the second creation, the word is yatsar. It's a human action, like making things out of clay. Molding bowls out of clay. In the first creation, you have God overpowering the chaotic waters. It's a dark and dreary, empty void place. These are later symbols of evil or sin you're using the word evil, but it's really symbols of chaos and uh, darkness and chaos, right? Um, but then God takes that chaos and turns it into converts it into a habitable garden for humankind. In the, the J document, there's no discussion of chaos at all. Okay, then we continue in the P document. God creates the skies and the earth. Okay, see how it's more heaven centric, which fits God as being more majestic. In the J document, uh, earth and sky. Earth is created first, then skies. Earth and skies, more earth centric. Next, God creates. Uh, God speaks creation to existence, but in the J document, God labors. He's actually in the garden or in on the earth or, or whatever, laboring, as if. You have somebody laboring with their hands into existence. And finally, this is really fascinating where you have God creates um, Adam. And the Hebrew word Adam means something like humanity, man or humanity. And Chava, which is where we get Eve, God creates life. Her Her name means life. So God creates humanity and life, gives them life. Okay, Whether there were two people actually called humanity and life in the garden is beside the point. The writers of the P document are showing, like, this is the ultimate man and this is the ultimate life giver, and that's their names. Okay. In the J document, Adam is, the the word Adam is not an actual person. It's not a proper name until you get to chapter four. It's just a generic term. Me, it's Ha Adam, the man. So you have to to be careful. It's the man. It's just a generic name. The woman, she's not called woman until she eats of the fruit. After she eats the fruit, she's then called. Hava or Eve, meaning life giver. She eats the fruit, and now she's life giver. So you see how this works. It's um, yeah. it's very fascinating to see the differences between these two accounts. Uh, I didn't get to this in class. I kind of was talking about the other stuff. So this is the first time my at least my students who are watching this first time you're getting this. And then there's a little bit more here. Man and woman are created together in the P document. Man is created first, woman last in the J document. Humans are created in the image of gods in P. Okay, humans created in the image of gods. Man and woman are created out of clay, the very material that God was working with, with creation. Okay, the, the, also the creation order changes in the P document: plants, animals, man, and women. But in the second creation, it's man, plants, animals, and then woman. So it, it's changed a little bit. Then man and women are created to be partners in procreation. But in the J document, and this is really strange for, for a lot of my students, animals were created to be a helpmate, a helpmeet, a helper, right, for man. Go back and read it. It's clear. Animals were created to be the partners of man, and it failed. When it failed, God then created a woman from man to be a helpmeet for, for Adam, right, for the man. Well, it was for the man. Adam, you don't get Adam until the chapter four. Okay, so... In the P document, man and woman commanded to procreate. In the J document, men and women were uh, commanded to, eat, to not eat of the fruit. So there's different commandments. So a lot of people will say, like in our, in our religious uh, community, our faith community, there's this, this big discussion, this constant discussion about why would, give, why, why would God give conflicting commandments and how do we make this work theologically? And that's certainly a discussion we can have in terms of the theology. But if we just try to get back to these texts and say, well, there's not a contradiction for the P authors, they don't know anything about the other commandment. For them, there's a commandment to procreate. For the J authors, they don't remember any commandment to procreate necessarily. For them, it's do not eat the fruit. Okay. And then in the J document, you have a snake there to coerce Eve, but there's no snake coercing Eve in the P document. Okay. So let's move on. Um, you also have the Enuma Elish. This is very important for us to understand what the text is trying to do and what influences it. It's a Babylonian creation story. It dates to about the time when Israel comes into the land of Canaan in the 1200s uh, or the 11th, like the, the 13th or 12th century, centuries. Okay, So the Enuma Elish, people have taken an ancient history class might know have heard of this text. But. Um, notice it's, it's the Babylonian creation story, and Israel was conquered by the Babylonians, right? During that time when Genesis was put in its final form. okay? So if Genesis was written or at least compiled in its final form, during the time when their overlords were the Babylonians, you might we might see where in some places, the Israelite authors are trying to polemicize against or talk, you know, to against the Babylonian creation story. Okay, so let's dive in and see what we find. So in the Enuma Elish, you, you have a creation story where the earth and sky is created, and then after that, humans are created. You have Marduk, the storm god, defeats Tiamat, the saltwater gods. The storm god defeats the saltwater god. Okay, in Genesis, if you remember, God who creates the world and does what? Subdues or conquers or overpowers the deep the chaotic waters makes an inhabitable world. So it's really, in Genesis, it's the storm gods who defeats the salt water, okay? And also, Tiamat. Some have suggested that Tiamat is the cognate. So it's the cognate word for, like, in Akkadian, for Tehom. Like, you know, home is Tiamat. So it's cognate. And so really, like, the Genesis writers are kind of whispering this, like, they know that there's, they're, they're, they're trying to do this on purpose. They're being provocative on purpose, saying it's our God who defeated Tiamat. It's not Marduk. It's our God who defeated Tiamat. But the word there is really defeated the salt water. But, you know, there's two meanings there. In the Enum of the Divine Council, you have the gods. And you also have that in Genesis. It's the gods said, let us make man in our image, like the gods. You also have in the Enumilation and other ancient Near Eastern creation stories where you have the sun, moon, stars, oceans. These are all gods or created by or overseen or managed by different gods. Gods have an individual. God has stewardship over these different, you know, different aspects of the cosmos. Now, what are the writers of Genesis trying to do? They're trying to again, they're trying to polemicize against the Babylonians and the other ancient Near East nations by saying, look. You guys all have your gods that were individual gods over these, ocean, over these, you know, the moon, the stars, but it's our God who created all of that. The God of Israel is the one that created the sun, and the moon, and the stars. Okay. And so this is a story when you, you read the creation, God created, did all this and brought light into the world and, and you know, restored some structure, chaos. That's, that's a point they're trying to, Israelite authors are trying to make that our God is more powerful than your God. Our God's the one that created your gods. Okay, you see how that works? Um, in the Numa Elish and other creation accounts, humans are created to be slaves of the gods, like the humans till the ground and do all the work for the gods. And again, it could be that the Israelite authors are trying to say, trying to show how Israel is different than these other nations. And I'm oh, sorry, I switched green. So in, in other words, so in Genesis, it's not humans that were, that humans weren't created to be slaves of the gods. Humans were created to be stewards. God gave them stewardship over the garden, over the animals, over the earth, and he allows them to benefit from it you know, for themselves. Okay. Um, okay, so we also have Gilgamesh, and I'll try not to spend too much time on this, but anyone who's taken a class in high school or college, uh, would have known about, would have been introduced to the Gilgamesh epic, ancient, the third millennium BCE in Mesopotamia, one of the oldest texts and one of the most well-known texts in 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 history, in the ancient world, the ancient areas. So we'll just kind of go through this pretty quickly, but you can kind of see how the Genesis story might have been uh, influenced or might have used Gilgamesh and just assume that these events, these elements or historical, or I don't know, they they took it uh, as a given that everybody believed in these types of elements and, and they folded them into their creation story. The Israelite authors folded them in, adopted them. Okay, so um, here's, in the Gilgamesh epic, you have these people, the people of Uruk in Mesopotamia. They complain to the gods about the wicked king, Gilgamesh. So what do the gods do? They concoct a plan, okay? In Genesis, the divine council, the gods, concoct a plan to create the earth and to, you know, create the garden, create man. Okay, the god Aruru creates Enkidu. This guy Enkidu from clay makes this man out of clay, and he's a kind of hairy Sasquatch, and he's left naked in the an animal habitat. Okay, this is similar to man to Adam, who's made out of clay, and then he's left naked in the garden of Eden with animals. Garden in Eden, East in Eden. A hunter tells Gilgamesh about Enkidu, and so King Gilgamesh sends a prostitute to seduce Enkidu. They spend seven days together in this animal habitat. Notice, it's not, I mean, Adam and Eve, it doesn't say they just spent seven days, but the creation is finished in seven days. So these elements that you can see are very similar. The prostitute says to Enkidu, quote, you have become wise, you have become like a god. Why should you roam with wild animals? She says, let's go away from here. Let's leave this place. Notice Adam and Eve become wise like the gods, knowing good and evil. And the Hebrew word to know, yada, also means to engage with someone sexually. I put this in here not to make a claim that Adam and Eve were, that Eve was a prostitute or that Adam and Eve engaged in sexual uh, activity. But I wanted to put that in here to show perhaps there's some... Cultural influence, where you have the prostitute within Kedu, and then you have Adam and Eve in there. And the the word to know, you will become wise like the gods. You'll be able to. You will know. In other words, you will know how to procreate. You will know how this works. That's how procreation was introduced into the world. Okay. So next, you have the the prostitute clothes in Kedu, gives him clothing and takes him to the wicked king Gilgamesh. Notice that Adam and Eve were clothed after they became wise like the gods. Okay. Gilgamesh, King Gilgamesh, and Enkidu become friends, and Gilgamesh realizes that he is only mortal. He's a, he's a mortal being, and he wants to become immortal. Also in the story, this is just, the story's long, but I'm just kind of going through it pretty quickly. The goddess Ishtar attempts to seduce King Gilgamesh at one point in the story. She tries to, so there you have a god trying to seduce a man. Notice in Genesis, they, they use this as a evidence of corruption. The sons of God came down to the, from the divine realm and procreated with the daughters of men. This is one of the reasons why there's the flood story. It's a corruption. So it's possible that the the writers of Genesis are speaking against. They are showing that okay, in the Gilgamesh Ishtar comes to get to Ishtar comes to Gilgamesh. That's a problem, and it also happened, you know, in Genesis story. Okay, so then you get the flood story, and in Gilgamesh, you have a family meets Gilgamesh, and they tell him that they became immortal when the gods flooded the earth. In effect, uh, you know, he saved them, and in a sense, they escaped death. And this guy, Utnapishtim, and his family is similar to Noah. So in Genesis, it's there's Noah and his family are preserved. Uh, notice it's not a direct parallel. So even though this family becomes immortal, you know, Adam and Eve were immortal, and then they became human like. So there's this kind of reversal, and then you have the Noah flood story, okay? Also in Gilgamesh, this family instructs King Gilgamesh to obtain a plant that would restore his youth. This is how he'd become immortal. He finds that plant, and he, he actually finds it, and then a snake steals the plant. Notice those elements are in Genesis. There's a tree, it's a plant, which is a tree. It provides a kind of immortality, in other words, living like the gods. Okay, you, 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 have, you know, you have knowledge and you live like the gods, but there's a snake in the garden and attempts to deceive. Okay, so we'll talk about this in class more, but I just want to put throughout the elements to show how these texts um, are, you know, what the authors are trying to do if Gilgamesh, you know, influenced it. Now, so here's, let me show this, we've showed this before, but here again is the prime, primeval history. First section, the first five chapters and the second five chapters are a repeat of themselves. And here is a chart that kind of shows that, how this works, Adam, and then the new Adam, who's named Noah. In the story, you have God organize the chaotic waters in Adam, the the first five chapters. The next five chapters, you have God returning the waters back to chaos to start over. Adam's posterity started to go downhill they uh, lapsed into um, corruption and fratricide. And so God says, okay, I'm going to destroy the earth. I'm going to return the waters back to chaos, to its chaotic state, and start over. Also parallel, you have Adam and Eve dwelling in an isolated garden with animals. You have Noah and his family dwelling in an isolated boat with animals. Adam is the first gardener who experiences problems with his garden. There's the woman who tempts him. There's the snake. There's the fruit. Noah is the first vintner, he's a producer of wine, who experiences problems in his vineyard. There's drunkenness and his disrespectful son, if you remember the story. Adam and Eve are found naked, are ashamed of their nakedness, they're covered with garments, and then there's a curse. They're cursed and they're sent out of the garden. Noah, if you remember the story, Noah is found naked, he's ashamed of his nakedness, he is covered of his garment, his sons cover him, and then he's, his son is cursed. Now, if, what that story is about, if you remember, so one of the sons, uh, Ham, sees his he goes into his father's tent, he sees him naked, and then he goes and tells his brothers, he's making fun of his dad, he's like, you should see this, you know, and he's um, disrespecting his father. And so it brings shame to Noah. And so what happens is his brothers get a cloak, like a, a robe or a cloak, and they back up, go backward into the tent, Throw it on their father to protect and preserve, you know, protect his, preserve his dignity as, as, as the patriarch. And, and then the son is cursed. Okay. So it's a doubling. Noah is a doubling of Adam. It's It's a second Adam and the story is just repeating itself. That's the point. These stories repeat itself. The section concludes with genealogy of Adam's posterity. And then the Noah section concludes with Noah's posterity, the genealogy. Okay. The reason why I mention that is because you then get to Abraham. What the authors are trying to do, they're trying to race through thousands of years of history in the first eleven chapters, showing two different cycles of dysfunction, where God started over, he created it, it didn't work. He started it over. That didn't work. And then what he does is he comes to Abraham, you know, the father of the nation, Av, Av means father in Hebrew, Abraham. And then you have the first eleven chapters covers thousands of years, but then the next 13 or so chapters is just in Abraham's lifetime. So what that tells you is that the authors of Genesis aren't so concerned. Their major focus is, should, is not on the creation. Like, yeah, they're, they're messed up. Every ancient Near Eastern text or, all, or a lot of them that, that attempt to write a national history or the origins of your people start with creation. You don't just start with the origin of your nation. You start all the way back in creation. And so it's like the it's like the authors of Genesis feel like they have to do that. They start back in creation, they engage in some polemical you know games along the way, throwing shade at the Babylonians and whoever else, trying to correct the record, spin spin those elements to an Israelite, I guess theology, for lack of a better term. But their goal is to get you to Abraham twelve as quickly as possible. Then the story slows way down, and the reason why they want to get you to Abraham is because the covenant that God makes with Abraham. God said it it did not work with Adam. I commanded them to multiply and replenish and I will bless them. That didn't work. I told Noah the same thing. That didn't work. And instead of killing everybody again, and and if if you remember, God was about to start killing people again in Sodom and Gomorrah, like he, he, he wanted to, and he ended up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, but you can start to see where God is now able to communicate with humans and have humans say, wait a minute. Don't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's even 20 people or 10 people who are, who are uh, righteous, preserve, you know, don't do this, God. Preserve it, okay? So you start to see how God is willing to work with humankind. And what he does is he covenants with Abraham. So here's the covenant. In chapter 12, we read, and it's also repeated in chapter 15 or 17 and, and later chapters. But this is where it starts in chapter 12. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham has shown a great land. His posterity will become a great nation, and God's enemies, God, God will curse the nation's enemies. That's the covenant. And so if we know that, all the rest of the stories, all the Jacob cycle, the Joseph cycle, and even the rest of the Hebrew Bible should be read with this covenant in mind because they constantly, authors are referring back, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, referring back to that very covenant with Abraham. Okay, so let me show you a few things. Here is the Abraham cycle. And notice again, how the symmetry is, this this text is created with incredible, incredible precision and symmetry by the ancient authors. They do it so the A sections will match, you know, the story goes, goes along, A sections match, the B sections match. And the, the central part of that is to be, is the most important, like that's the central part, the makes the most, um, that, that's the big, that's the punchline. And notice here, the central part of this whole Abraham cycle is a covenant with Abraham. So we were introduced to the covenant in chapter 12, but it's repeated in 15. There's the covenant with Abram before his name's changed, Abram. And then you have the Hagar and Ishmael. They are sent away. That's important in these two sections. And right in the very next section, God covenants again with Abraham. The covenant is repeated. And now you have Abram and Sarai, and then you have Abraham and Sarah, and then she's promised a son. That's the most important part. Okay, so I w- we won't go through all these different sections and spend a lot of time on Abraham, but I do want to to zoom in on this E section and show you why this is important. Okay, it's the it's Hagar and Ishmael. Okay, so right here, purple, you have Hagar, Ishmael, and the covenant. So right here, this story is the focal point of the entire. Uh, section and it's foretelling Moses and Israel in Egypt. It's a reversal. Okay, Hebrew Bible authors do this. They take little sections. It's a little microcosm of a bigger issue, a major issue in Israelite history, and that is the Israel in Egypt. Okay, so let me show you this chart and what the Hagar story represents or symbolizes. We have Hagar as a representative of the Egyptian nation, and Moses represents Israel. So Hagar is an Egyptian slave, and she's oppressed by the matriarch of the Israelite nation. The reversal of that is Israel, later will be oppressed by Egypt. Okay, This is a foreshadowing. The Hagar-Ishmael story is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Israel. The Egyptian Hagar flees from Sarai to escape Egypt. Moses flees from Egypt. The Egyptian Hagar meets God in the wilderness. Moses meets God in the wilderness. God tells Hagar to return to Sarai. God tells Moses to return to Egypt. God is named Elroy, or God sees me, uh, to Hagar in the Hagar story. And then also, God is named in the Moses story. Remember, he tells uh, Moses, tell them, I, I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. A whole section of, the, of Abraham, focal point, is as a... Prophecy in effect, even though it's written after, even though this section is written way after the Exodus, it's kind of a prophecy uh, of what's going to happen to Israel. Okay. So it's a little story within a larger story. Then you have the transition section, and this is there's transitional material. When you go from Abraham, you have Abraham and Isaac, you have those. When it transitions to Jacob, there's a few chapters that serve as a transition. And then when you transition from Jacob to Joseph, there's another little section that that is a transition. And as you can see on the screen, the colored sections are actually written to mirror each other. There's a lot of passages and words and terminology and literary things in there that that are meant to parallel each other. Okay, I'm not going to go through those, but um, they're absolutely there. Okay, so those are the transition materials. And then we get to the Jacob cycle. you got 11 chapters there. The purpose is primarily about Jacob's dysfunctional family and his rival with Esau. God blesses Jacob's family despite their dysfunction, and he honors the covenant. Okay, there's some lying Jacob, you know, he lies, and his mom helps him deceive. And Esau, the older brother, is not uh, given blessing, but it's Jacob is blessed. Really what this section is trying to do is it explains the origins of the Edomites, Esau being the father of the Edomites, and also how God... Blesses Jacob. He changes it. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He blesses Israel over Esau or over the Edomites. Okay, this is a story with that in mind. That's the entire purpose. So here is the here's the section of Jacob again. Very symmetrical. Very it's deliberate. Written on purpose. It's not just this nice narrative that kind of goes through. It's it's created uh, specifically to be to mirror itself. And notice the middle section, the most important section. Jacob's wives are fertile and Jacob's flocks are fertile. Again, this is the Abrahamic covenant, okay? The Abrahamic covenant, in the last, in the in the, in, the, in the Abraham cycle, you have, in fact, I'll just go back so you can see it, okay? In the Abraham cycle, that central part, Hagar, Ishmael, it talks about, uh, it's really a precursor of what's gonna happen to Israel. What this shows is that part of the covenant, God will de- defeat Israel's enemies, okay? God defeated Egypt, okay? And then here in the Jacob cycle, in the, this is posterity. This is, this is Jacob's wives and flocks are fertile. You will be blessed with posterity. So God will fight your battles for you and, and def- defeat your enemies. And God will preserve your people and you'll have numerous posterity. And also wealth. You'll prosper, right? The flocks are also fertile. Okay, that's the, that's the point, main point of the Jacob cycle. And um, let's see, what do we have here? Oh, here's a quick, I want, you can pause this. This is, so you remember, Adam and Noah were doubling. There was a a doubling. They were repeated after they were meant to be seen together. The same thing with Abraham and Isaac. There's a doubling there. This is a repeat of these founders of the Israelite nation. So you can just kind of pause this and go through. Um, the, The traditions associated with Isaac are exactly the same as Abraham there's a famine in the land at the beginning of those narratives they're both considered aliens and in the land of the Philistines god covenants with both of them both of them encounter abimelech the king of the Philistines specifically in gerar in the southern region of canaan okay both of these men lied about their wives as their sisters both are told by abimelech quote you what have you done to us you have brought guilt upon us like when you lied about your wife being your sister okay both of them are increased in wealth flocks herds and Household, and then both settle in Beersheba and dig a well. So you can see this is this is a similar pattern to Adam and Noah. Yeah, and the same thing happens, with Abraham and Isaac. Okay, we'll just race along. Um, this is again just a crash course, forest, forest view of the book of Genesis and what the purpose of the is. Now we get to Joseph. The scribes who composed, or redacted this section, wanted to make a political point. This is the running theme. What's the political point? Well, it's to reaffirm. That the primacy of two tribes. We have Israel, sorry, we have Judah and Joseph. time these texts are written, they already know that Judah is the dominant tribe in the South, Joseph is the dominant tribe in the North. And so when they're composing this story in Joseph, like the the story of the Joseph section, everyone knows about these tribes. The dominant tribe in the North, Joseph, through his son Ephraim, and the capital was Shechem, or Shchem, the dominant tribe in the South was Judah. And It was Jerusalem, okay? In the Joseph story, Jacob, if you remember, lived near Shechem, and it, this is where Joseph was cast into the pit. So hundreds of years later, Joseph would then, his, like, the tribe would be located up north, and that's, in Shechem, that's the capital, okay? So you can see the writers already know this is going to happen, so they put that back on the Joseph story to make, like, somebody's reading this. Remember uh, Gary Rensberg's depiction, or, is like how he explains this is a later story, writing about the past, but they're also, when they're telling the story of the past, they're really writing about the present. And that's what this is. Okay, Judah is highlighted in Genesis in the story for saving Joseph's life. And it was Judah who later offered to take Benjamin's place in prison. So in, in Genesis, they're trying to make Joseph look good, and they're trying to make Judah look good. A two strong man who would later become... The, the capitals would be pretty much named after them. And here again is Joseph. Here's the Joseph section. Again, it's created in a very sophisticated way. The middle section being test, the final test where Joseph tests his brothers. And it's finally where you realize that Joseph, that prophecy that Joseph would be Lord over his brothers. It comes, to, it comes to pass now. And this is the last. We're at the very end of Genesis. Remember, everything points back to the Abrahamic covenant. And this is one example. Chapter 50, verse 20 Joseph says to his brothers, Even though you intended to do me harm, to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people. Again, right there, Abraham, to preserve the numerous people. That's the point of the story. And the authors of Genesis remind us of this. That's the end of this forest view but as you when you read into joshua and judges and samuel and Kings, all of that even into the prophets major and minor prophets if you know if you can remember this book and what it was supposed to do the book of the patriarchs abraham isaac jacob and joseph the point of each of those sections uh, what they were trying to do with creation but really they're trying to get to abraham the whole point of genesis if you remember these You will understand, or you can pinpoint, can you can identify a lot of these themes running throughout the Hebrew Bible as they're pointing back to Genesis. So here is just one last slide. I think this is a, a visual representation of the structure. We had the where all of those colors are parallel. There's another section that is written that they're meant to be to match each other. So primeval history, the Abraham cycle, the Jacob cycle, and the Joseph cycle, and then those little transition sections. So. A lot of this is, is to say that this book was written in a very, very deliberate, brilliant way. And it really adds some sort of mystique or some power to the text, especially as you know, if the literary scholars study this and they just they love it. And I want my so my students who uh, if you're not my students and you're just like watching this, um, you can enjoy this, you know, please comment in the video, maybe something new that you learned in this video. Um, so for my students, I want you to bring your notes to class and be prepared to talk about not just the element thing that I talked about, but now we're going to, to use this as a launching pad into our discussion about what it means, what are the implications, how do we in our faith community and in our as students at this university, how do we engage and understand these texts and understand what's going on? How does it relate to us? so we're going to discuss that and, and grapple with it so bring your questions and uh and be prepared for a, a pretty good discussion okay thanks guys let's be sure.